Before we start this beautiful episode, I would like to tell you about the Model United Nations, the Euromon, that will take place in May this year in Maastricht, the city that um, our beautiful podcast is named after. I know you are a big law fan. I mean, this is why you're listening to this. And a lot of Model United Nations don't really have any European institutions, if you're interested in that, right? But maybe also no courts. Sometimes the um, the International Court of Justice, but, but that's about it. And here there will be the European Court of Justice, which is a very, very great addition um, for the legal minds that are interested in simulations. So if you want to apply... If you want to have a lot of fun, go to euromon.org, that is E-U-R-O-M-U-N.org. Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many, a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Welcome back to Maastricht Law Talk. My name is Benedict and we are here for the 10th episode. Um, I'm with Andrea Ott. Andrea, hello. Hello. You are professor of uh, European Union External Relations since... Well, a few days already, right? A few weeks, yeah. yeah. Here at Maastricht University. So what exactly are you are you doing? Uh, well, I've, I'm doing still the same things as before. I, um, I've been before here working as an assistant and then associate professor. And I've been uh, mainly concentrating on EU institutional law and also then on EU external relations law, teaching a master course in EU external relations law and also institutional law for European studies. Uh, on the bachelor level, on master level, I'm also working at CLEAR. This is the center uh, for the law of external relations. This is a special center founded uh, by different professors and colleagues here uh, in the Netherlands, which work specifically on external relations issues. So, so all matters relating to the external dimension of the European Union. So, so it's a research network? It's a research network mm -hmm. in principle and our output is concentrated on clear lectures. Uh, so some diplomats speak in The Hague where the center is situated at the Asser Institute, speak about the presidency of uh, the European Union and uh, reflect first on the agenda when they start taking over this presidency and then reflect on their achievements afterwards. We also have now initiated clear lectures uh, for uh, from the academic side. Peter van Elsevege from Ghent University recently gave a lecture at The Hague um, on uh, uh, the relationship with Russia and EU sanctions. And we also will follow up with these clear lectures soon in Brussels at our campus mm -hmm. of the University of Maastricht, where I will give a talk about Brexit and the <laughs> current state of play in regard to negotiation. That will come back. <laughs> And then um, we will also have a clear summer school. Mm -hmm. um, we will now plan the fourth edition where we talk within five days about recent developments, external relations law. People yeah. from the institutions come to us and speak about uh, their legal perspective on uh, external relations law. So case law of the Court of Justice, uh, uh, the legal services of counsel and commission come to us. We go to the EAS and speak to them. 
Um, Is we, the registration still open? Yeah, well, we, we still have to open that, actually, <laughs> oh, okay. and we still have to um, actually uh, develop further the program. Okay, We're almost okay. there, yeah, but yeah. In, uh, I think in two weeks' time we have a final program, which we also would like to see a lot of applications <laughs> joining us in, in Brussels. Who, who's welcome? Because you've said um, that you are not only teaching law students, but also you've been study students, which are exactly. not necessarily law students. We right? have so. had uh, different uh, students from different professions, political science, uh, mm -hmm. uh, law students, some practitioners. Uh, so it's open to everyone. Okay. And we then select the, based on the CV, uh, the applicants. Okay. Yeah, then uh, if the listeners are into European Union law after this, <laughs> maybe even uh, external relations law. Yeah, and a lot of interesting issues uh, yeah. arising every day, which have uh, implications on external relations law, mm. like the Brexit mm. and also uh, other recent developments. A lot of case law by the Court of Justice, which covers external relations law, the Singapore opinion of the court on uh, free trade agreements. There is so much, actually, it's almost difficult to keep pace. <laughs> Um, you should do a full month. School, <laughs> yes, uh, that's that's true. But unfortunately, the summer is not that long in Europe that we can cover four months of summer school. Um, yeah, but we are very happy, and a lot of colleagues come back uh, to speak at the summer school uh, because they thought it was a nice experience exchanging their views uh, with students and also sometimes with practitioners attending this summer school. Okay, so I guess in a few weeks the listeners can just go on clear.nl, c l e e r dot n l. Um, to find more information, right? Indeed, and also on on the website of uh, Maastricht University. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Um, to just come back once more, you, you did say <laughs> that you were also teaching here at Maastricht University um, non-law students, mm -hmm. um, which is good, I think, for us now, because I also want to bring the law close to people that are not related to, to the topic. Um, how, how different is that really, if you would want to teach a course to European studies students that might not have a law background in a national system or even uh, European? Indeed, this is a challenge. I think it's for both sides a challenge. It's for us lawyers a challenge because we are too much into our own system <laughs> that we sometimes forget uh, that uh, that terminology is not really um, familiar to these uh, students who have not studied it before. They don't have any background in law. So um, it's for us a challenge, but even more for them mm -hmm. because they have uh, to force themselves into the subject within seven weeks and um, uh, they need to work hard to understand the terminology. And reading law textbooks is also a very much a challenge for them. Oh, yeah. Because uh, so it's be a very technical language. <laughs> books for me, probably. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah, it's, uh, I always say to them, it's really admirable what they do because they have to do economics, uh, political science, history, oh. and law. So <laughs> they really know which subject they like at the end if they have finished the bachelor course. Mm -hmm. And some are actually uh, come to us at the end and do a master course. In law. Here in law. Okay. Yeah, and we yeah. even had people who finished a PhD without, with, with us in the law faculty and started to teach with us in <laughs> law and we still have them here. So we are happy about uh, these kind of uh, uh, colleagues who come over to mm. and, and, and think actually it's very interesting because uh, law has the reputation of being very boring. To non-lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> to non-lawyers. Maybe also for lawyers. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Depending on it, your personal preferences, right? <laughs> indeed, yeah. yeah. I think uh, I could imagine, I can remember from my own times when I studied, there were certain subjects which were really very dry. Yeah. 
It's, it's definitely there. Yeah. Administrative law is always a good example. I don't know whether it's, it depends on your taste, but I think, exactly. uh, no. I would oh, think like, even, um, yeah. well, a criminal law can be interesting. Um, right. uh, but there are some uh, stuff like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, procedural law can be very dry. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, very, uh, yeah, there are a lot of subjects I could think of which were not very thrilling. But European Union law is the most thrilling. I thought so when I studied it. It was the most interesting one, which covered actually interest. I always had like history and political science mm -hmm. and uh, it was developing very rapidly, which we now actually sometimes find uh, a nuisance because you have to follow on a, on a daily basis events yeah, yeah. and uh, things quickly change. Yeah. Not only with treaty revision, but also in, in small steps like legislative changes uh, occur regularly. Mm. So you really have to, uh, it's very difficult. And this is a general trend we see in EU law um, that you almost have to specialize in certain fields. Uh, you almost, it's impossible to follow uh, EU substantive and institutional law. Uh, and, and then the different aspects of the area of freedom, security and justice, yeah. because they move very much apart from Good, each other. Good, but if, if you look at a national system, right, there's no one that specializes in Dutch law, right? It's, it's, uh, I mean, maybe, <laughs> but, but you're really more the private law person or the contract lawyer, right? Um, so even within the national system, you have um, uh, specializations. And then it, I think it makes sense only that on the European level, that's that's the same, no? Yeah, but I do, we do see still in some other member states, like, for instance, Germany, yeah. And some others that they still claim uh, to cover then the whole field, yeah. uh, though they actually uh, still f uh, specialize. If you look at their publications, they still will have a focus on public or private law. Mm -hmm. And then within the public and private law sector, they will again specialize on certain aspects. <laughs> but it's uh, interesting. I mean, it allows here to, to specialize. And it's nice that you have the chance uh, to teach also the course within your interest, mm -hmm. field of interest. Good. When uh, you've mentioned Brexit, I mean that, that's basically everywhere. And um, let's just imagine. I, I hope my listeners have a <coughs> few uh, ideas what the European Union is. But let's imagine that you just always watch the news, and then the, the whole Brexit thing is happening, and you know this. Well, maybe you know that there's a Commission president. Not even probably. <laughs> so there's this this my mystical uh, European Union. Um, what like how, how what is it? How 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 did it start in the first place? So. Well, this is probably yeah. still a mystery for a lot of people why it started. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I read a book recently um, uh, that actually there was always a big misunderstanding about the membership of United Kingdom in the European communities. It was slash a mistake Union. in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it was a misunderstanding. They were, yeah, always, yeah. they were always the awkward member from the very beginning. <laughs> and I think it was never a love affair. And uh, even Labour and the Labour government and Tony Blair had their reservations and mm. they had a lot of opt-outs. So uh, they already had a special regime applicable to them yeah. because they insisted on certain um, aspects like opt-outs regarding the area of freedom, security and justice, euro currency. And uh, they have always found their way around uh, the general rules. And um, uh, so it's still surprising maybe that they uh, nevertheless left. Um but I think it's also a misunderstanding because um, what we see right now uh, in practice is that uh, they are actually experiencing something uh, which they, um, which is the worst case scenario for somebody who wants to regain their sovereignty. <laughs> because they actually... Uh, which was the initial idea. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, you see now uh, that what happens uh, also in regards to the solution which we can offer them 
Uh, we have, for instance, the Northern Ireland problem, mm -hmm. where there is the condition which the United Kingdom also accepts that there have to be no hard borders, so there have to be open borders between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. To achieve this um, in a manner which is legally consistent, they have to be Uh, they have to stay in the customs union with the European Union. And this means actually that um, there is not much choice for the United Kingdom overall to not accept the customs union model. Yeah, uh. And this was already advanced by Jeremy Cobain in his speech that he said, okay, we probably should stay in a customs union relationship with the European Union. But we don't even know yet what that is. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no. Hey, yeah, yeah. <coughs> Let, let's, let's step back just just a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you've mentioned that the, uh, the, UP, uh, the, the United Kingdom always had a, a weird place in the European Union. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, Quite some years earlier, um, how, how did the union start in the first place? So we, we have the situation of the war, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, if I remember back to uh, high school times, uh, there was something with steel happening, right? Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the war production shouldn't be <laughs> um, in the hands of the Germans anymore. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how did it start? Well, I mean, uh, if you if you if you teach history, which we do not that often teach, because it would uh, provide we would be forced to uh, do another course on history. You do see always these ideas of a Euro united Europe. This come up in philosophy and uh, by politicians uh, already in the 1920s. But it, uh, as you rightly said, it too it took two dev devastating wars. Um, To, uh, to bring up the idea in a, in a fashion that everybody could accept it. And um, interestingly, it is, was not built around the political union, but it was built around this kind of economic customs union cooperation. You okay. mentioned at the beginning coal and steel. Yeah. Um, that's correct. Um, but in principle, um, the idea was born out of the necess necessity. And I always thought it was this idea behind it that you needed to implement also the demands of the United States with a Marshall Plan. Okay, okay. I, I mean, some this. I mean, you could dispute this, maybe the importance of the Marshall Plan, but actually the idea behind the Marshall Plan was we give you, the Europeans, the money, and you please organize your system according to certain conditions, yeah. like free market, plus you also lower the customs duties among each other, and you also organize it in a fashion that you trade with each other. Which sounds heavily <laughs> like what we have now. <laughs> But yeah. I think it, in, the, in the European narrative, they always want to reduce the influence of the Americans on these reforms. Mm -hmm. I think there is this kind of narrative <laughs> discussion where they would like to reduce uh, this, this aspect and that it was our own idea and our own creation. Mm. But I think uh, when it would have been our own idea, it would have been maybe earlier possible than uh, <laughs> so many years later. So I think there is also this argument by, this, by the United States, we don't want to every 20 years march in here and clear up the act and then go out again. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so some security. Uh, some, some, so uh, that you, we, we want to have, obviously, we want a democratic uh, conditions. We want to have, actually, that what the European Union puts into its motto, yeah, peace uh, and prosperity. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's actually the, uh, the original idea behind the European communities, European Union and its values. It's mentioned peace and prosperity. <laughs> so uh, this is what it should ensure. And actually, this, when you look from that aspect at the European Union, Uh, also for this, they got the Peace Nobel Prize some years ago. It's almost already forgotten. Um, then it has been a very successful regional organization mm -hmm. that it has been achieving this peace and prosperity, also with outside help. 
And at the beginning also without the Brits, because as you know, there was this Churchill speech, this famous Churchill speech on Europe, where he actually clearly uh, said that uh, the Brits are for this kind of European unification and United States of Europe, maybe even but without them, because they are a British <laughs> Commonwealth. They would look uh, in a very friendly manner at it, but they see themselves uh, uh, separate from this developments. Yeah. Yeah. And they started with coal and steel. I mean, the argument was also to get the, 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 uh, the German war industry under control and not uh, take everything apart. And uh, because this was also originally planned maybe to make it into agrarian nations, the German, and don't let any more have an industry production in Germany. This yeah. was uh, the original plan also, which was sometimes promoted, but they realized they cannot do that and they have to integrate them into uh, the, the European uh, system and the production and to have a common control over this coal and steel, the war producing industry mm -hmm. was uh, the, the key for, uh, for, for vocating trust among nations, among these European nations. Yeah. An interesting thing, which I also um, thought about is actually, and I think it's a bit underestimated, uh, especially from non-Benelux countries, it is this Benelux union. <laughs> I, I mean, a, lo a lot of colleagues from uh, from uh, from these Benelux region always uh, discuss it and it's not very often discussed in other member states but it actually forms a nucleus of the European Union because they started much earlier with the customs union idea in 1944 mm. they uh, they also established a schengen system much earlier they had a benelux court they still have it so this kind of laboratory for european developments uh, you can see in this benelux union And this is interesting because then you can say you have already tried out certain ideas. It's not that they came out of the blue. They yeah, were yeah. actually something which was already in the making and was tried out in a in a smaller framework like the So Benelux was it maybe then. just a logical conclusion to to have it on a bigger scale? Yes, I mean this is something which you, which is fair enough if you if you see that something is successful on a smaller scale uh, and you see that this kind of passport union or common currency works mm. then you can also extend it on a broader level yeah. as a, as further integration yes okay and how did we get to today how do we get to today <laughs> well because we, we're not the coal and steel community anymore no no, no. i mean no, they the were, european union i mean they <laughs> had always this kind of i think there are two parallel tracks you always had this idea you have to also create a political union mm-hmm And they had this parallel track in the uh, 1950s that they wanted a European political and defense union. But this failed because the French Senate didn't approve this. So then they had to move back to the other plan B, you could say, with the European Economic Community, which was built around uh, the economic integration and also economic cooperation mm -hmm. and built around the idea of a customs union, Benelux style. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then this was then the, the B plan, which was in 1957 initiated with the Rome treaties. And it, from then on, uh, it went further with uh, further treaty revisions. But the real developments was really that you had a strong court, which started to have these kind of constitutional decisions from the 19, beginning of the 1960s. So basically the Supreme Court of the European Union, if exactly. you would want to say it like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was a, cons but nowadays we call it a constitutional cons court, yeah, yeah. but it was uh, already losing quite early the idea of being only an international court mm. between sovereign nations. It became a court of a so-called supranational entity. And uh, this actually furthered the developments at the time where some member states, like France, when they had this empty chair policy, 
So they boycotted the meetings in the council because France was not happy from moving from uniform or uh, 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 uniform voting to QMV that they said, we don't want that. Mm. We want to keep our sovereign input and sovereign uh, possibility to say no to certain decisions or legislation making um, acts that then actually the court of justice came, uh, actually filled the gap and uh, made kind of progressive decisions uh, because there was a kind of uh, political stagnation happening in uh, between, you could say, 59 and uh, 68, okay. where you didn't see much happening politically-wise. You still had some treaty reforms like the merger treaty. But more slow. Uh, but it was not no big, uh, big further progress in, mm -hmm. in the reforms. This actually took a long time. If you see it, the time at the beginning, it took them until 1986, until they had the first major reform of the existing treaty. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah. And, and, and this was the first major treaty reform um, after actually the Rome Treaty. But after this, we have a lot of treaty reforms. And I think this is also confusing for the public when you see every two years another treaty reform. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it does, does the public understand what's happening there, what a treaty is? I mean, m maybe if they would have listened to my last episode, our last episode on international law uh, with Marcel Brüss, and then we actually talked about what a treaty is. So my listeners now uh, now actually do know what it is. Um, but is, is the public interested in that necessarily? Uh, no and yes. I, I, I think uh, uh, the public is, is following, um, I hope at least, the news and uh, following developments. But I think it's confusing for a public to hear every year, two years, that the European Union is further developing into this and that. And yeah. we saw it especially with the constitutional treaty, where suddenly the public reacted to this and saying, we don't want to have a constitution in Europe. We have a constitutional system in our member states. Mm. So we don't need another constitution of the European Union. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that just it just makes yeah. <laughs> the word constitution in itself might have been just wrongly chosen, right? I mean, um, that's just something that can be used by the Daily Mail, by the Bill, whoever it is, um, to 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 fight against this European idea. Yes, and that's the problem. Actually, again, the gap between uh, experts or uh, bureaucrats and the public, because mm -hmm. for us, like lawyers. A constitution is also, uh, the United Nations has a constitution. <laughs> so a constitution could be also a neutral word, like having, uh, in principle, a structured system of cooperation. Yeah. Um, but a constitution is a loaded term. I yeah, mean, uh, individuals would uh, see with a constitution these kind of things. It's the national identity. It's the history. It's the anthem, the flag. And this is was maybe the issue with the constitutional treaty because it included actually these kind of anthem flag <laughs> and a minister of foreign affairs so it had these kind of um it used this kind of loaded terminology and it triggered the discussion then we don't want that yeah also something like elements that are very much connected with nation states right? exactly yes <laughs> and uh, this was um this was something which was clear that uh, we have lost the public during this process of uh, integration. Because uh, if you try to explain uh, what is European Union, it is a long explanation and you will lose a lot of people on, <laughs> on this. For instance, yeah. I had a friend asking me when they had the referendum on the constitutional treaty in the Netherlands. So tell me, because she got the constitutional treaty in, 
in our household. Everybody got a copy oh. in the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, so she had these all these papers in her hands and she said, so tell me, what is it all about? And then I think nobody of us can do this within five minutes. Then you probably have to <laughs> narrate the whole history. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to start with somewhere, right? And then, yeah. Or you very much simplify it. You say, um, look Dangerous, at the, right? how far we got. I mean, yeah. if you look at, uh, I mean, if, if you look, for instance, at the history of the European continent in, in the 19th and 20th century, there was actually never a time without warfare and, 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 and millions of people dying and, uh, destruction and economic uh, failure and so forth. There was actually, uh, for people who have lived in uh, the 20th century, they, they lived through two world wars and, and, and uh, destruction and hunger. And if we have experienced of now, since 1945, a, a long time of this so-called peace and prosperity. This is a huge achievement mm -hmm. if you compare it with everything uh, which was there 200 years before in the European, on the European continent. Yeah. So you could say from that perspective, you could say that um, the European Union is a success story and it has been, uh, uh, it, you should not put this at stake. Mm -hmm. You should not, uh, you should see there the, the advantages of the system. But yet maybe the, uh, no one sees it because uh, no one has lived through the wars back in the day. Right? Maybe that, that's, this, that's, and that's you forget the about for you, voting for, you as take well, everything right? for granted. Yeah, exactly. But that's yeah, why yeah. the the British uh, Brexit is such a nice case study <laughs> of what is good, or maybe also bad, but also especially what is good about the European mm. Union. They will experience maybe customs controls. They uh, they will have passport controls again. Um, they experience all the kind of uh, bureaucratic red tape, which currently is not a, a, a not applied between EU member states. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is something <laughs> which uh, which is then on the ground the example, and we also see it in reaction to the Brexit that suddenly the European Union has again more um, uh, people who support the idea again. You actually see more support for the European Union since uh, the Brits uh, have decided to leave the European. Good, Union. but but the the. The people governing whoever that might be, um, <laughs> the the European Union, they they also did change their behavior a little bit since the whole um, Brexit thing uh, came out. Now, I mean, they they, they, mean? they then saw okay, now we have a problem, so we we might have neglected this important aspect of uh, public relations. Um, go have connections with the public, with the people in all the different member states. Um, don't have such a big distance. Right, but as soon as Brexit happened, then they noticed, oh God, no, no, we have to somehow um, get these people back into into the European idea. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's also uh, the, the the Brexit is maybe also triggered by other uh, developments, uh, crises, because it has been discussed that the European Union has been going in the last. 10 years, so always new crises, like uh, first uh, also the financial crisis and then mm. the refugee crisis. And it, it, it they, that's also a problem of this blaming game we have in the European <laughs> Union. Um, when, uh, when something goes wrong, it's blamed on Brussels. And if something is going well, it is being done by the national member states. <laughs> and this is uh, yeah. frustrating. Yeah. And then obviously you can never sell uh, the success of this organization, but you also, this organization is made into something bigger, which maybe supposedly can address more than it actually has, can, can do. Like in a refugee crisis, they could not do more and cannot do much because they don't have the competences and the possibilities, mm. depending on the cooperation of the member states. 
So that's also an, an issue which the blame game has to stop. Sometimes the politicians do say it themselves, uh, but they they have to be more consistent in this. It's difficult because they're politicians. They want to be elected every four years. <laughs> so they don't look yeah. uh, at the grand design. And uh, this is something which they have to keep in mind. I mean, may maybe that's why the court had such an important role in the in the whole development, right? Because they didn't have to be re-elected. I mean, they get... Uh, exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember I once had a lecture by Pierre Pescator in 1992 when I started to study also EU law. And he was really already at that time very famous. He was a former judge of the Court of Justice. He then went to the WTO as a panelist. He had worked... He was one of actually the... Uh, fathers, you could say, of, of the Rome Treaty as the Luxembourgish diplomat. And he also, he, he, he stressed actually, we took only the, the, this kind of treaty seriously, which the member states didn't take seriously anymore. We implemented the ideas behind this treaty mm -hmm. because they were not doing their job. We were doing that <laughs> and filling the gap. Yeah. Which also has been accused for political activism. So you have also accused the European Court of Justice for this kind of political activism, which should not be there. Mm. But okay, if you are uh, if you are convinced that this is not just another international organization uh, between seven states, uh, then you then maybe you have to have the seal as this judge to to promote the European integration idea to yep. not make it fail at the beginning. And they did not fail it, despite all these crises. They always have to have move on. Mm -hmm. Whether you have to always move on in deeper integration is, however, highly doubtful because one of the theories since the 1970s was always uh, we deepen integration over the different reforms. Yeah. But I think we have reached a point where this is not anymore uh, something you can achieve. Mm. So you have more diversity among the member states and you have more differences in the application of EU law. Well, we, we have established that there are treaties that mm -hmm. somehow uh, govern uh, the, the European Union, how it is organized. Um And we've talked about the Court of Justice, how uh, it took the liberty to uh, further um, integration. But what should the European Union lawmaker have done um, to, to do it themselves? So how can the European lawmaker actually further integration? There's treaties, but what are other sources of law? Um, yeah, the, 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 uh, the Council of the European Union uh, is making the legislation together with the European Parliament nowadays. And uh, they can only further integration depending on the competences they have. Mm -hmm. So nowadays we have since Lisbon a competence catalog uh, where in the treaty it is described clearly what kind of competence they have for which kind of policy field. Okay. And they, this is due to the system of the attribution of competences. Uh, you have to really check carefully for which policy fields they can do what. So for social policy, they have very limited mm -hmm. powers, while for internal market, they have more powers, even approximation powers to harmonize the laws and rules of the member states. And um, so it really depends on which area we are in. And this uh, differs. Yeah. No, but, but uh, yeah. So but, but there are treaties that we could say a primary primary mm -hmm. union law right but yep. what what does the the lawmaker then actually produce so there's case law mm -hmm. um that does the, the by, by the court of course yeah um that that produces law um but there's uh, statutes bills whatever yeah. you want to call them on the european level yeah so, yeah so, what they, what they so call them there? they call them secondary law in form mm -hmm. of regulations and directives and decisions 
Um, the original idea was also in the constitutional treaty to change the name into European laws and European framework laws, which is actually okay. what they are. <laughs> but this was again the tricky thing: don't change it too close, change it not too much into the direction of a national member state okay. system. So we still have the kind of old names which they already had in the Rome Treaty system regulations and directives and decisions. Okay. And the regulations are in principle the European law replacing the national member state rules. So very intrusive into the national member state system. And the directives are what the constitutional treaty suggested, a framework EU law, which in principle develops the frame. Um, and then the member states can jump in and yeah, try and to Yeah, and then the member states can fill it out according to their national member state tradition. Okay. It still needs to be done in a binding fashion, uh, but they have more leeway in implementing this kind of rules. Yeah. And there is a tendency nowadays, uh, generally... Uh, to use more directives, especially in areas where the EU has a weaker competence. And um, uh, so in these areas where there is more, there is the possibility that member states probably will insist on more leeway and more time to implement this, they will use a directive in, in place of a regulation, a EU regulation. Okay, and what is a decision? A decision yeah. is an individual decision on a specific case. Okay. Uh, which is only applicable not for an unknown number of situations, but for a specific situation, a decision applicable. So like a, like also in a competition law, we have decisions which are maybe mm -hmm. applicable on for uh, for certain companies only or anti-dumping. We, we do call them a regulation. There are anti-dumping regulations, but actually they apply for only for certain companies. Okay. They're, they're a decision in disguise, <laughs> you could say. Yeah. Now, if I uh, remember correctly, um, well, you've just mentioned there are competences in the treaty. Um, but if I remember correctly from a few years ago, in a course, it was said that the union or the lawmaker tries to basically argue everything is the internal market. And uh, as the, those the internal market, which we will talk about soon a little bit more, free movement of uh, persons, goods, etc., that is connected with that. Um, but... Is the list of competences really so exhaustive or is uh, the lawmaker just using um, the internal market to actually just yeah, decide on everything they, they deem to be necessary? Well, there is a tendency or was a tendency to, uh, to use this Article 114, the internal market legal base, for a lot of situations where it was not clear whether it was really connected to the internal market. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, a famous tobacco advertising case, which was one of the, I think it's the only case where the Court of Justice struck down um, okay. the, the, the legal measure because it violated actually 114 <laughs> because it was, this was also about tobacco advertising as, uh -huh. as the name says, which uh, where the court said it was actually the focus was not the internal market, the focus was public health where the EU doesn't have a competence to harmonize. Okay. So they um, created a higher hurdle to use um, Article 114 because it could be abused. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And there is the tendency, and it's clear that the commission prefers uh, this legal base because it, it's, but it says also in 114 explicitly that you can use this legal base also for other aims like consumer protection, oh, okay. environmental okay. protection <laughs> and public health. Yeah, yeah. So it is actually a crossover competence, as I always say. But how was this tobacco advertisement ca case different from directives or regulations we have now relating to, for example, um, tobacco, uh, well, the, 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 the boxes of tobacco where the brand isn't allowed to be on there anymore, or at least there has to be a picture on the, um, <laughs> on the box. Yeah, yeah this is, 
In principle, uh, this tobacco advertising case, you could say, as a warning sh- was a warning shot <laughs> to the Commission or to the EU institutions not to abuse this harmonization <laughs> legal base. Yeah. But case law following this tobacco advertising case actually were all accepted for using 114. So the court has become again lenient mm-hmm. after this. They established a certain conditions they the use of 114 has to fulfill. But after this, they became again, yeah, again, they're more generous. So uh, you can again defend uh, your legal base if you use 114, if you explain a clear link to the internal market. You explain that oh, okay. you prevent yeah. your obstruction, distortion of the internal market. Mm-hmm. And this is just then a question of the justification of the legislation through the preamble and the uh, further explanation of the legislative history. Isn't that also one of the criticisms that the Brexit, uh, pr- well, the, the 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 supporters of Brexit had that basically the competences are just, I mean, technically they're not rising, but um, the, uh, the the law just gets into way too many um, different areas. The competence creep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was uh, this is criticized also by other member states, not only the United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom has become very outspoken. Because there are several cases in the last 10 years where the United Kingdom was challenging the legal basis for uh, <laughs> agencies which were created in regard to the financial crisis, the ESMA case, and um, also in tobacco, other follow-up cases for tobacco advertising, also the United Kingdom challenge. But there were also other member states like Germany also because the federal states were challenging this. Um, also, the tobacco industry was actually also lobbying for <laughs> challenging, especially in these cases, yeah, yeah. Um, the legal basis. Yes, there is always the accusation um, that it could lead to a competence creep. But I think it has, um, we, it's always in waves, this integration. You also see the Court of Justice actually having this when you have very uh, integration-friendly decisions in uh, in the 60s and the 80s. You do see again then more a conservative wave arising, and around the Brexit, you saw also several judgments by the court um, being very kind to the United Kingdom and also not trying <laughs> so, to provoke any any. So the last anger. minute effort to, to yes, actually a last minute <laughs> effort to to yeah. uh, to to uh, to actually achieve uh, a certain um, uh, yeah. That the public would would vote for staying in the European Union, mm-hmm. uh, not having big daily ma- mail or sun yes. messages <laughs> so about that, that uh, been, what yeah. the European <laughs> Union uh, forces the United Kingdom to do. That the cucumber is uh, has to be not any more curved, but okay, straight. But is, uh, banned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These kind of uh, elements of uh, of what always creates this upheaval, this 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 smooth. Which are mainly also, uh, yeah, fake news, you could say, which is difficult to, to, to explain then the, the nitty gritty details of agricultural legislation yeah. to outsiders. Yeah. It's all, it's never black and white. It's obviously very, very different shades depending on which field we are. But yeah, there is this accusation of creeping competences, but the member states are their own advocate. They are the making the treaties. So they can always rewrite the treaties. They have done this with the competence catalog. Mm. And have uh, with this competence catalog, this was also an emphasis to uh, to stop these creeping competences and uh, codify a lot of elements of the case law to prevent uh, that the court deviates from that. Yeah, good. I mean, good good point. Maybe to talk a little bit more about the legislative procedure. Um, you've mentioned QMV earlier. Mm-hmm. That is a term that a lot of people probably never heard of. 
Um, so what change was proposed back in the day? And um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea under, under an international law is that you agree on, 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 on changes or any changes unanimously, yeah. that you have consensus among the contracting parties. But uh, the kind of idea which was brought into the treaty already under Rome was that you include after a certain time period of transitional time period, you move from this unanimous voting between the member states in the council to qualified majority voting where every member states has a certain weight within their vote. So you weight the votes. This was mm -hmm. the original idea. Nowadays, we don't have this weighting, weight <laughs> voting anymore. We have now the population and it's quite a compl complex formula, which is in the treaty. This is also impossible to explain yeah. to an outsider, but it's in principle saying that, that every country has a certain weight within the voting process. And the idea is also that uh, the big member states cannot outvote the others. So there is a certain system of balancing okay. the different uh, member states. But qualified majority voting means that a certain number of member states, if they are for a proposal, for a legislative proposal, this will pass then. Okay, so not everyone would really have to agree. So it's, uh, there's no. possibilities. Yeah, that I mean, there's a states... complicated system. We also have calculation <laughs> systems on the internet. Uh. It's called even a triple majority. So it can becoming rather complex. It's explicitly explained here, but a calculator always helps to calculate mm. the different votes and the population numbers and so forth. I, I will put the link to the calculator in the description so people can play around a bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes it uh. complex, complex, but the idea behind it is that not the big member states like France and Germany can hijack uh, yeah, yeah. the the council. So there's also a cap, like a maximum. Uh, yeah, and you need a certain amount of smaller and bigger member states agreeing on a certain legislative proposal to get it through. Yeah. And uh, it's but you need to have alliances between the member states. Mm -hmm. So um, it's important that you build certain alliances. So, for instance, what I heard uh, from a conference in the Netherlands recently that the Netherlands is not very happy uh, that the United Kingdom leaves the European Union because they were always actually in a lot of things the ally of the Netherlands, of the small Netherlands. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially also in cutting the budget and all of these uh -huh. kind of issues where the Dutch are very much promoting this. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of countries and among them the Netherlands was hiding behind the big bag of the United Kingdom, which was more outspoken about saying no to a lot of proposals. Yeah, uh. And now the uh, Netherlands is forced to develop an own EU policy <laughs> outside uh, uh, the shade of uh, the United Kingdom. And this will be interesting yeah. because they have to form new, uh, new alliances. They have to find new member states. Like also now the discussion of the new budget of the European Union. Uh, recently in the news also it was said that uh, uh, Rutte the, um, said for the Netherlands that, that so the, prime minister, the huh? prime minister yeah. said that he wants to um, doesn't want to see that uh, the budget is increasing because the United Kingdom leaves he actually says because they are leaving as a net contributor we should actually have less in the budget yeah, yeah. Or, or at least stick to what we have yeah, right now not spending more <laughs> uh -huh. and uh, yeah, this is difficult to promote because the uh, the Netherlands is not such a, from its population, such a big country, though they are net contributors. So this changes the alliances between the member states within the council. Yeah. I, I've initially thought about opening our discussion with a question whether the European Union is a danger to sovereign um, states, sovereign member states. And now I just want to bring that up again because of QMV, this uh, ability, possibility of other member states to vote. Um, 
uh, well, to come to a conclusion that some other member state really is against. Um, yeah. So, so there you have this principle of unanimity lost mm. uh, that you normally have. So others do decisions uh, that affect your country and that you yeah. really don't want. Yeah, I mean the danger of sovereignty. I mean sovereignty. Um, does the concept of sovereignty work in the twenty first century? <laughs> I mean, how, which how many sovereign countries do we have nowadays? I mean, everybody is somehow linked everything is interlinked in nowadays society international trade and and climate uh, change and all of that it's uh, how sovereign is a country mm-hmm. i mean it's clear that the united kingdom will also pay for its sovereignty so they will get some sovereignty back but it will be very expensive for them yeah and um i think nowadays you have to think wisely how you want to how much sovereignty you want to keep um How much is it worth your sovereignty to be independent from all the other states? Because if you you cannot argue that this uh, nowadays you in principle so much interlinked that uh, you cannot speak in uh, sovereignty is a sovereignty is a very dangerous word. I hate it as much. <laughs> I hate it as much as legitimacy oh, because okay. it's the other word which is really abused in the discussion of the European Union. Uh-huh. Because all the time when there is something uh, difficult or there is a criticism of the European Union, it's always discussed, This ha- the European Union has a legitimacy or the, it's not limit, whatever. Yeah, so uh, this is always thrown at it and it's also <laughs> the sovereignty. I think this is a very much abused, this term, okay. because I, it's very difficult to define it and B, it's not an absolute term, right? There is no, I mean, what's sov- sovereignty in nowadays? Because if they would want to, they could still leave again, right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're not forced to. to I mean, stay, uh, right? you're always a sovereign nation to leave the European Union, as we see with the United Kingdom. <laughs> But as, it sa- as I already said, it has its price because yeah, the European sure. Union will lose on this. They will lose financially, though they maybe get their net contributions back. <laughs> But they will lose actually in, in, in trade volume. There are already exercises oh. by economists that this will be uh, not a good development for them. Yeah, yeah. We already see it now. For both sides, right? I mean, that's. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's interesting. I was just uh, in February at a conference in Turkey where we also discussed the Brexit uh, because the Turks in have Turkey. an interest in it okay. because they're in a customs <laughs> union with the European Union. Yeah, yeah. So everything which is agreed with the United Kingdom has implications for the Turkish side because. For instance, if they stay, if we stay, the European Union, uh, with Northern Ireland in the customs union, then they, uh, Turkey can easily trade with Northern Ireland, their products. Well, sure. From there, uh, yeah. bring it back to the yeah. UK. Yeah. So, um, so they actually, and we had somebody from the British embassy there who was telling us, uh, the listeners that, uh, Uh, he didn't understand what we want. Uh, the British uh, economy didn't crash after the Brexit. So <laughs> in principle, what is the problem? Mm. And he said, we're already negotiating with the Turkish side about uh, uh, the future plans of ne- negotiations and the relationship. But I think this uh, simplifies everything. Yeah, it's logical that the UK economy didn't crash. I mean, that it's too big to fail. But still, we see the implications on a daily basis. Um Uh, agency, the agency leaves, uh, the medicine agency leaves to Amsterdam. We have companies and banks leaving, uh, London, uh, because the future is uncertain. So we already see little implications and there will be not a big crash. No, I don't hope. And I don't think that it will happen, but there will be a decline mm-hmm. in the economic growth. And this is what you pay for your sovereignty. Okay. We'll see <laughs> at the end how big uh, the price will be. <laughs> But it's also uh, not possible for the Turks, and this they know probably better than the British uh, representative at that moment in Ankara. They cannot negotiate with the 
with the British side for several reasons. First of all, they're not yet a third member state, so they only start to negotiate in March then, mm. uh, or after the end of March. And plus, um, they um, they have to wait how the relationship with the European Union will look like before they know how they have to construct a relationship with, with the UK. With the UK. Okay, yeah. So they're actually not so independent and uh, as they are. So they're still depending. I mean, everybody in the proximity, Norway, Switzerland, are also depending on what the EU does. Yeah. This is a big actor in the region. And, you know, well, you can't play without them. <laughs> you have to somehow accept probably the rules of the game they, they give you, yeah. more or less. Uh, it makes sense because we're all in a proximity that you want to trade with, with, with each other. So <laughs> then, uh, um, yeah. And there is no better deal than a customs union and internal market for uh, the the free free trade uh, between nations, uh, because this is an open market. Then, but everything below that is 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 consisting of uh, trade barriers and and complicated red tape. Let's talk more about the internal market then. What mm -hmm. exactly is then? Yeah, the internal market is actually described in our treaty. And it's uh, it's at the beginning of the treaty described uh, the internal market as a free movement. Uh, so it's it's a free movement of goods, person, services, and capital. Mm -hmm. So this is in principle the four freedoms, as we say uh, in law. Um, they allow um, for the free movement and also preventing restrictions of this kind. Okay. So for all these four freedoms, there there should be no hindrances directly or indirectly. So this is why we have it so easy to just be in the Netherlands right now, um, because there is no no obstacle or. Yes, um, I mean we also had a transitional time at the beginning, so I think we always forget. Actually, the European Union was in the original founding in 1957. They also had transitional period, and the customs union had to be created. Uh, for 10 years they, until they created the, the, they completed the customs union. So this didn't happen from day one. But, um, if you look at then from the 1970s and 80s on, you had more free movement, but you always had uh, hindrances. I mean, if you talk to colleagues in the area of free movement of persons, mm. establishment rights, free movement of services, we also have not the complete achievement of the internal market. We still have bureaucratic hurdles or hindrances. So it, it is on paper rather free, but it can be still encountering national restrictions. But then if you trust the sun, if you, oh God, sorry, the sun, and uh, oh, I don't have to be sorry for them. <laughs> no, anyways, um, if, if you trust them and then uh, say, okay, but all the European workers are coming to the United Kingdom, steal the jobs of my uh, fellow countrymen. Um, yeah, but this makes me a bit angry, the discussion. And, <laughs> and, and tr interestingly enough, the British uh, representative of the embassy there in Ankara also gave this argument why the Brits voted for leaving because all these uh, labor workers, the migrant laborers were coming to the United Kingdom. Well, first of all, um, it's a common, it's a former commonwealth. So a lot of migrants already came from other regions than yeah. the European Union, but it's true. A lot of Poles and uh, Czechs and all of uh, Eastern Europeans came to United Kingdom yep. in, the, in difference to other member states. But this is also related to their own policy making because Blair, at the time of the first Big Bang accession in 2004, um, did not insist on transitional uh, derogations or a transitional period. Uh, all the other member states... So for the new member states entering. Yeah, Germany uh -huh. or Austria insisted on um, safeguard measures so they could restrict the access 
of workers from Central and Eastern Europe for the, a certain number of years. Okay, and the UK didn't But the bother. UK said, no problem, we want them. Uh, next yeah, to yeah, Sweden, yeah. they were the only country we didn't insist on transitional <laughs> measures. Why didn't they go to Sweden? Because there is a language barrier and supposedly also complicated labor regulations. So they all mm. went to United Kingdom because yeah. probably everybody speaks some English. Yeah. Oh, it's, it is easier than It's easier Swedish, to get yeah. access to the market. Yeah. And maybe they also need it because there is also now the discussion in the United Kingdom that they don't have enough seasonal workers once uh, the market closes for these kind of migrant workers. Mm -hmm. But this kind of matter was, <coughs> sorry, a UK, um, yeah, policy mistake. Maybe it was a policy mistake from, from their side, but they could have prevented this under EU law. They could have easily uh actually um have had transitional measures which have barred the access to the uh, market of the U uh, of the UK yeah, yeah so this this was something which which is self created you could say and and then additionally there are, i mean i think the argument of the foreigners taking our jobs away is <laughs> Well, they probably don't. Bit, yeah, yeah, but this we will also weird, see. Yeah. Yeah, but we see it also as a laboratory because we see what happens when they have their jobs again. Yeah. Whether they can fill all the the, the vacant positions they have. Yeah, yeah. It already has been said. No, that for all these kind of low paid jobs, they will not find enough UK workers for. Yeah. So let's see what what the practice <laughs> tells us in a few years time. Uh -huh. Um. But I mean, it's again this kind of claim uh, you can easily. Uh, challenge because this is not true it's again something which uh, which is uh, yeah something you can shout out which is not even true mm -hmm. but it's difficult once this kind of simple truth is or simple half truth is being announced how to how to uh, correct it because i think the guy from the embassy also believed this <laughs> uh, yeah. so it's huh. it's a kind of strange thing if even the establishment is <laughs> is promoting these ideas then you already wonder uh how this ends yeah. <laughs> let, let's try to give examples for the four different freedoms so you've mentioned the free movement of goods services capital and people mm -hmm. um let's maybe sh start with goods what exactly does this entail maybe for me personally now as a, just as a listener um how does this help me actually well it helps you if you order something uh, um, within the European Union. Well, it's uh, for instance, for Amazon, you're, you're yeah. probably a lot of people order via online services. But if you order something from the United States, uh, you will still have to pay customs duties on the product. So mm -hmm. at least that's also my experience when I ordered twice <laughs> something from the United yeah, States. Yeah, I think that's 25 euro as the, the, mi the, the, the minimum or the maximum untaxed, but everything above is then boof. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I ordered something from the United States. Once I ordered it to Germany and I had to go. This was actually also telling a lot about the German and the Dutch system, by the way. Um, <laughs> when I ordered something to Germany um, from Amazon and from the United States, I had to go to a special customs office oh God, yeah. at the <laughs> airport in Cologne to get, first I had to open my product and show it to them. And then I had to fill in a form. And then another person I had to go to, to pay for what I, what I don't know, 25 <laughs> or 30 euros. German bureaucracy. Yeah. German bureaucracy at its best. <laughs> And I had to do it until five o'clock because then the civil servants went home. <clears throat> so this was one example of what would happen if you if you have not a free movement on customs union. <coughs> and, the, and in the Netherlands, I also once the same product was sent to me to the Netherlands. And there I didn't go to the customs office. I went uh, to the post office at the supermarket. 
<laughs> and I didn't I didn't have to open the product, and I got the product within five minutes, and I paid the money. Okay, okay, so they so, just automatically calculate that on the so less worth, huh? civil servants right. active on that one. So it was clear that they had more <laughs> civil servants to employ the German side. But it also shows that this actually was uh, something you have to do. And this is not existing within the European Union. You don't okay. have to pay extra duties. We have a common external tariff. So um, in principle, what enters into the European Union market circulates freely. Uh, you don't have to pay any extra charges and no further restrictions can be imposed. So also no direct or indirect discrimination regarding the products. So this is why I can order from Amazon Germany without a problem to the Netherlands. Exactly. But why can't I bring four T? Oh, the big, I don't know what they're called. The the big packs of cigarettes. Um, <laughs> uh, why can't I bring forty normal packs of cigarettes from one member state to the other? Well, there are sometimes special rules in regards to certain maybe luxury products, and there is also special taxation because the taxation is still not yet in the hands of the European Union. We don't have a European mm -hmm. tax, so these are still. Uh, matters which fall under control of the member states and the member states want to keep that under their control, yeah. which actually creates a certain um, inconsistency because taxation has also an impact on, 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 on trade okay. and within the European Union. So these are these kind of awkward situations related to uh, the attribution of competences. Okay, so, so since the taxes in the other member state for cigarettes are so low, um, that I pay 250 per pack instead of five, mm -hmm. or let's say seven euro probably um, these days, um, this would be a justification. Yeah. Sometimes they do harmonize this. There is a famous case, you prov I don't know whether you remember, this was in the 90s, we had uh, banana regulation. Oh, United Brands. <laughs> yeah, we had in principle banana regulation <laughs> yeah. with the European yeah. Union initiated in 1994. And... Uh, And uh, we had the situation that the European Union decided to harmonize the market for bananas. But this was a big issue because every member state has a different regime. Mm -hmm. The French and the Spanish, they had, um, um, they gave more advantages to the ACP bananas or they had actually homegrown <laughs> bananas like the Canary Islands. Okay. And Spain had their own bananas, the small bananas. While the Northern European countries, especially also the Germans, had the dollar banana. The bigger banana, yeah, uh. and the Germans had actually even a no, even a better oh, regime. Uh, they had a special banana protocol attached to the Rome Treaty. The banana protocol, yeah, yeah. Uh. and then within the banana protocol, they had regulated uh, customs duty free access of a certain quota of bananas to the to Germany, mm -hmm. and this was their special deal. So in Germany, the banana was so cheap. Then in the moment they decided to have the banana regulation, the, the, the prices skyrocketed in Germany, especially ah, in Germany, yeah, yeah, because okay. they had this banana protocol. Yeah, yeah. And, and this kind of, this harmonized the market, but not on the lowest level, but somewhere on the middle ground. Yeah. And it changed the preferences of consumers because some, the Germans wanted their dollar bananas back. And uh, the French didn't have a problem with that because they didn't. Uh, import so many dollar bananas so this was really interesting to see uh, that actually they, they 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 harmonized it not on the lowest level but then somewhere in the middle <laughs> so it was also the representative of the commission at that time said what do you want we actually have brought down the prices if you see it overall in the European Union perspective we brought down the prices uh, in Europe for banana but in Germany it really skyrocketed Okay, but the average was the important part. Yeah, the right. average yeah, day yeah. the European Union but for the Germans it looked like the banana went from 
it, it got 100% more expensive. Oh, God, yeah. And it lot of, got a lot of companies went bankrupt in Hamburg, which imported dollar bananas because they had to buy license regimes to still import a certain number. It got very bureaucratic. <laughs> and there were a lot of banana cases at that time uh, uh, because there was also the WTO dispute settlement system under which uh, the Latin American producers were challenging this banana regulation. So this was an example of actually not a good example of what the European Union does because it looked, especially from the national perspective, as protectionism, mm -hmm. which also the WTO perceived as protectionism. So let's imagine I'm a, a banana expert and I'm asked to um, give advice on bananas and I go to another member state. So I'm German and I go to the United Kingdom uh, at the moment still. okay. Mm -hmm. I'm okay to do that, to just work there for a week to provide my services basically to them. My advice until the end of March next year. Yes, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, or any other member state. You really? can freely yeah. move around. You can look for a job for a few months without even having uh, to prove that you have a job already. Okay. Um, you you are free to 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 live and work. You have a right to a uh, to a residence to a work permit. Uh, these are in principle only formalities. So you're freely you can free, freely move around. Uh, the only uh, tricky issue are then maybe social security and uh, and insurance. So this is something which um, which they can ask from you that you are not become a burden for the host member state. Okay, so that's uh, probably again the Sun headline saying um, immigrant from member state A comes to the United Kingdom, gets all the social benefits, doesn't work. Right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. But then it's also a question. Um, If they have such a system which allows for these kind of situations, then they just have to change their social security <laughs> system. I mean, yeah. every member state is responsible for their own social security system. But technically speaking, they, they, it wouldn't necessarily be okay to just move to another member state and get the benefits. No, I mean, there, there is no possibility right? to, to do welfare shopping. No, yeah, yeah. And everybody moves maybe to Sweden to go for welfare there. No, this is not allowed. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, It's uh, yeah, it's it's in principle not that easy. You have certain conditions, and uh, this is also clarified in in primary and secondary law and through case law, and uh, also the case law of the Court of Justice has become more restrictive over the years. So this is also in in the general idea of a trend to to restrict the uh, the shopping for welfare mm -hmm. benefits. This is definitely not possible. Yeah. But is it again then the effort of the court to come back to earlier to maybe um, silence the critics of the European Union to just say, okay, we have our our competences together now? And uh, yeah, so especially on EU citizenship, at the beginning there were very generous EU citizenship um, judgments, uh, which pointed in a direction that even citizenship was considered a separate right, independently of your legal status within the host member state. But recently, um, more judgment pointed in the direction that, um, <clears throat> that there are restrictions to citizenship. Yeah. You have to also have a regal residence. And then you go back to the question, are you a burden to the host member state? Okay. And if you are, then you cannot rely on all these rights that easily. Then the, the host member states can restrict it much more. Okay. But does, what are the consequences then, right? I mean, um, on paper, maybe they the member states... Are they allowed to expel me back to Germany? No, or this what's is uh, this is actually the problematic thing. Maybe also for uh, the headlines of Daily Mail <laughs> that they cannot that easily expel criminals. No, uh -huh. if you're EU citizens, you cannot just throw out any EU citizens. 
this is not possible. There are very strict conditions and, and derogations for national security or uh, these kind of reasons are have been very restrictively interpreted by the court mm. and also secondary law limits the use of these rights. So it's not that easy to uh, to uh, to <laughs> throw out the criminal right. Yeah, yeah, it's not possible under EU law. And um, yeah, because there is uh, the right as a EU citizen, and yeah, then you just go into the UK co- uh, UK prison and not into the other prison. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but, but but just imagine the case of um, yeah, good someone already has been to prison several years in another member state, right? And then maybe still is a danger or an argued danger, supposed danger to the security of a member state. Is it then okay to say, no, you're not allowed to enter because we think you st- you are still a danger to the public. You're still a danger to society as a whole. Well, it c- depends on the individual situation, yeah. but I, but still it's a very restrictive application of these yeah. kind of exceptions because this is exactly the problem you have all the time. If you allow uh, member states to rely on these exceptions, you have these kind of awkward cases where Germany claims that uh, with this famous uh, beer cases or the Italians with their pasta – that you should not have extra ingredients in the beer because it's not good for the health of the consumer. I have to agree, but <laughs> no, no, no. Because it's it's an opening gate for protectionism or okay. or, or, or kind of uh, member states are very inventive in their in their uh, in their exceptions or justifications. So you have to really limit the possibility to rely on exceptions. I mean, that must be a crazy hard exercise by the court. No, I mean, on the one side, you have all the Eurocritics that, that want the union to be less and less um, re- regulatory. But then on the other hand, you also don't want to get rid of all the freedoms um, or the fundamental freedoms that you actually created the whole union for, right? So that's... Yeah. Is that maybe the reason why it's like uh, sometimes a ping pong in the case law? So it's like, yeah, a little bit more rights. And then, then uh, f- two, uh, three years later, yeah, let's, let's rather t- take that back. Well, you hope not, because you would hope that the <laughs> court is uh, not so much influenced influenced by the political climate. But you, Again, s- you have right. seen in the recent case law on citizenship uh, and citizenship rights, uh, and in other cases also, you do see that there is influence of the political climate. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there. Yeah, I mean it's not nice, but it's uh, probably you cannot avoid it. I mean uh, they also operate not in a bubble; they have to operate within the situation uh, of uh, yeah of, of of also trying to coordinate the different interests. And you see it also in external relations law with the recent Singapore opinion, where all almost all the member states except of three member states all gave their own position before the court. Mm-hmm. So this whole pleading took two days. <laughs> it was an extreme circus uh, because the opinion was considered so important. Oh, well, what is the opinion about? The opinion is about the uh, the FDA with with Singapore about the competences. Okay. So who can do what for these kind of big comprehensive so free trade FTAs. agreement? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this FTA covers even more than just trade. It covers also investment yeah, and yeah. other aspects. So it's this kind of comprehensive. We call it W two plus agreement. <laughs> so it covers in principle the updates of the world trade organization agreements yeah, which yeah. currently cannot be agreed in the wto framework so you do it in a smaller scale mm-hmm. okay bilaterally mm-hmm. yeah, uh. and there was a big issue um 
how far reaching are the competences of the EU and how far reaching the competence of the member state? It's actually an evergreen in the EU. We, a lot of cases about the competences. Despite the competence catalog, <laughs> we have constantly the issue, but member states are concerned about this. They ask the question, what are we, what can we still do? Has it become easier since the competence uh, catalog has been introduced? So maybe even harder because now everyone is like, oh, well, it's not in the competence list, so I can sue or <laughs> um, not sue. But, yeah. It has become actually more difficult since the codification for both sides, <laughs> though we all hoped with the codification, with a lot of other codifications in the Lisbon Treaty, that things should be clar clarified. Mm -hmm. But a lot of things have not become that clear because we have a famous ETA doctrine, which is uh, a famous case about the competences of the European Union mm -hmm. uh, in external relations law and also explains when a competence becomes exclusive for the Union. So that member states can't act on that. Yeah, when actually yeah. excludes them. Yeah, and the yeah. interesting finding of the ETA case was they're not able to act when the EU internally has legislated on that matter. Ah, okay. So the internal legislation triggers the external exclusivity. Yeah. And <clears throat> this has been codified by Lisbon, but it's not done in a good way. It is not well done, the codification. Maybe the case law is so complex. <laughs> But uh, this has led to so much follow-up case law again uh -huh. that we are back to what they have done before Lisbon. Again, a case-by-case -case approach. Nice try. <laughs> which is frustrating for everyone, but especially for people who try to understand the European Union, that you cannot understand it by just simply looking at the um, wording of the treaty. Though I find it unfair, one thing I want to say, um, there was a, actually... Um, Once a meeting between Supreme Court judges and European Court judges, Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, oh, okay. Um, and uh, uh, Supreme uh, Sandra O'Connor, she was a Supreme Court judge at the at the U.S. Supreme Court. She uh, was holding up, I think it was the cons constitutional treaty at that time. She was holding up the text and saying, "Well, look at the U.S. Constitution and look at this piece, <laughs> and uh, this is impossible that they have so many pages in the treaty." And we have such a short constitution. And this cannot be... Good, welcome to civil versus uh, common law, right? <laughs> yeah, not only this. I don't know whether this is this, uh, but I think it's also unfair to organization, um, yeah, which is built same. on so many compromises yeah, yeah. and uh, on this kind of, kind of in the middle. It's not really a state. It's not really an international organization. So... It's so finding itself. It needs to be somehow balancing different interests, yeah. uh, which leads to... Yeah, more text at the end. So they cannot have a short constitution because uh, they have to uh, cover every eventuality. Mm -hmm. No, it's very interesting. Um, a few episodes ago, I think episode five, I had an interview with um, Carter Lenny Becker from uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And um, his view on, on European Union law is also very interesting. Just for everyone, um, li listen back to that episode. It's uh, it's interesting to see how American lawyers... Uh, so how do they perceive it then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would refer still... <laughs> I don't want to quote him wrongly now, uh, but it's still... Um, yeah, it, it's obviously not the easiest uh, thing to grasp if, if you're not this... Uh, well, from, from that area yourself, right? But I have to also say the UN chart is also shorter than the EU treaties. <laughs> well, good, okay. But then the UN doesn't have as much power as the European exactly. Union Exactly. I right? think it's also a question. Uh, member states want to insist on certain things to be put into the primary law because they're afraid it could be leading to creeping competences or other erosion of their power. 
So that's why they uh, sometimes want to have things in there, especially also the reform of, for instance, the trade provision, Article 207, yeah. demonstrates this. It has been already improved version because we had before the predecessor norm of the common commercial policy uh, legal base had, I think, um, 12 paragraphs or something like that, which was an exact codification of the case law. Okay. So it was horrible. It was, <laughs> if you want to fall asleep uh, at night, you could read it. <laughs> and 207 has been improved, mm -hmm. but it still includes very specifically the voting procedure. Which, it, yeah. And for really. all the area which are sensitive to the member states, yeah. like audiovisual services, transport services, they have unim unanimous voting again put in there. Mm -hmm. But everything is really listed in detail in 207. Again, in the areas <laughs> which are really... Yeah, sensitive for the member states. Yeah. And and this is also showing this kind of difficult balance because it's exclusive competence. They want to make sure that they stay with one foot in the door and and sneak in, obviously, qualified majority voting in there or unanimous voting has to be adapted mm -hmm. so that they don't get, they lose uh, their control over exclusive competence. Yeah, yeah, And that's why the Singapore opinion was so important for them, because it's an area of exclusive competence. So uh, they want to keep the uh, European Union on leash. So they make sure that they don't. Uh, but this, again, is then what you can accuse the European Union of, because then you make everything complex. So decision making takes so uh -huh. long. Ratification of mixed agreements takes forever. So this doesn't make it into an effective global actor, the European Union, if you have... So well, many. you know, but we also have worse uh, examples, right? Maybe. I mean, well, <laughs> the UN, <laughs> which, of course, you can't compare again, right? Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's not a supranational no, organization, not, no, so no, they no, don't no, claim no. Uh, this kind of more efficiency than... They cannot claim more efficient uh, structure than the European Union. But how is it with the with the African Union or... Um, Oh, the, the, yeah, this the, is the another, Jamaican, yeah, uh, yeah. not Jamaican, sorry, the, the Caribbean, I think, union. It's Eurasian called, union you, is yeah, also there. Uh, so yeah. well, how does it work? Uh, you know, does it work better? No. No, no. So. But we are their role model, which also tells a lot about <laughs> the success story of the European Union. If you see the African Union, it very much copy what the European Union yeah. does. Or the Eurasian one, the Putin organization. Yeah. It does the same things only without democracy. <laughs> which is, I don't know whether this will work, but it's a nice... Uh, uh -huh. Well, it also took a little bit more time for the European Union to get into the direction of more direct democracy, right? I mean, direct is the wrong word again, but the European Parliament, its powers uh, haven't been there since forever. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh -huh. Um uh, that this is all, was also a process. That's true. Um, though it has come a long way. I mm. mean, nowadays it is. Uh, it has now. Uh, it has still the. Uh, I mean, it's always dis discussed the lack of democracy, the democratic <laughs> deficit. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, there is this democratic <laughs> deficit, but you also should not forget that actually, uh, the population can also have control over what the European does um, via the council. Yeah, the member states themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so there is actually the legitimacy via the council that they also control what the council does through their national parliaments. Mm -hmm. But maybe it has become too technical for also the national parliaments. Yeah. But it's their own responsibility to keep the uh, to to stay informed. That's true. <laughs> so actually, there is a democracy, uh, democratic control also for this area from that side. Yeah. Okay, th that's missing in, uh, in some of the other organizations. So the, just the Eurasia. Um, I mean, the one where the Putin organization is clearly not democratic on the base of the rule of law. They also have an own court set up. 
I mean, I, I think it's very funny. I mean, what he does there. I mean, I, I, yeah, sad and funny, huh? I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the Russian influence area, which they. But he tries. He really copies all the elements. So he, yeah. it's it's incredible when you read that the organizational charter. It's 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 a copycat thing. Yeah. Why um, why why invent everything? For, uh, yeah, yeah, but also right. with the Andean community, you see it also in Latin America. They copy certain elements of supranational system. Mm -hmm. But it's not working as well as the European Union. There are certain bits and pieces in there. But I think it's only the proof for myself is this is the proof that the EU has a success story. Yep. If other regional organizations try to copy most of its elements. Do you think that the success story will continue after Brexit? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think yeah. there will be always something left over. <laughs> 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 will, I mean, will, will, will it be easier for the member states to further integration now that the, the Brits are out or are the, the Poles, the Hungarians and others still a, too big of a problem to, to further there? Or? But there are some advocates who say uh, that it should become easier in some areas, like also in the common foreign security policy, mm -hmm. uh, where it was always argued that the uh, UK yeah. didn't really contribute to this. Yeah, uh, so we have now this PESCO initiative, which also only came after the UK has in principle already uh, said goodbye. <laughs> And uh, you could also say that in other areas, maybe it's easier. Um, some others would say maybe it's more difficult. Maybe it's also the argument brought forward that you see more differentiation in Europe. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you could see that if you want to move forward with the European Union project in, in ten deepening the European Union, it will not be done with all 27 you will have to again have certain groups of member states which go forward and the others stay behind. And that's what the Eastern European countries don't like because they see this as a uh, disadvantage for them. Well, okay, but if... Yeah, are the Eastern European countries the problem why integration isn't pursuing further? Or are the Western European countries the problem since they don't want the workers from... Um, maybe these member states in the countries, as a one example, of course. I don't know whether this is still a problem with a worker. Yeah. I mean, you do see... Uh, or other reasons, really. Yeah. I mean, you see a problem, especially with the refugee crisis, with oh, a different yeah. understanding yeah. of solidarity and the different understanding how to redress the the problems, yeah. uh, which especially Greece and, uh, and Italy faced, where you didn't see much uh, goodwill uh, from, from, from the Central and Eastern European countries. And also the understanding of how they perceive solidarity was completely different. <laughs> so, the, the well, okay, but then yesterday or today, the, the Greek government announced that they will not take any refugees back that have actually, uh, well, un under under the Dublin regulation, mm. should be back in, in Greece. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, there's also lacking solidarity right there. Yeah, right? I mean, it's a it's a huge <laughs> it's issue. You cannot yeah. uh, you cannot address it that easily. But um, uh, there were some. <laughs> some actions like for instance then also Orban Hungarian uh, president yeah. said I mean you can pay for the wall we built that's what, <laughs> way, what we understand under solidarity uh -huh. I mean there are some misunderstandings and I think uh, but on the other hand I'm wondering also to see their perspective we kept actually also not our borders open for uh, the migrants from Central and Eastern Europe when they tried to work there I mean except yeah, for the yeah. United Kingdom which had yeah, open yeah. borders which, <laughs> Now they no, regret true, it. True. But uh, the other states, like the direct neighbor states, Germany and, and Austria, they really had uh, uh, the kind of restrictions applicable for many years. So then there was always the argument coming up, uh, we are second-class second citizens mm. because we don't have access to your market uh, for a certain time period. 
So and then you can wonder what, well, how much solidarity can you expect from them who actually don't feel like they have an equal status? Or at least we also had this yeah, discussion okay, with, uh, Makes sense, yeah. with the chocolate paste with Nutella of different qualities. Oh, yes, yes. This is also yes. immediately yes. Read, led to a, a huge discussion. I mean, two uh, classes of products in yeah. Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So this immediately erupts again. So there is not much unity in such a big European Union. So you have to have differences among member states and probably you will have different projects within the European Union uh, promoted by some member states, but not by all. Mm. Uh, and this trend already exists for many years, but we maybe see more of this in the future, which is not bad per se. You cannot avoid it with such a heterogenic European Union. You have, obviously, you have differences between yeah. member states. Um, you already have this, and this is something which becomes again obvious with the United Kingdom leaving. <laughs> you have already third member states, which actually participate in the internal market. What are third member states? Yeah, members, uh, well, member states was maybe the wrong word. Third, maybe, <laughs> so third countries, countries, third countries. Third oh. countries. No, sorry. Okay. Third countries. They are not member states, but they are for the internal market treated like member okay. states. Okay. Yeah. Like take, for instance, the EA. Mm-hmm. The European Economic Area with Liechtenstein, Norway, and Iceland, yeah. which actually participate in the internal market without full, it's a, like a partial membership, you could say. Yeah. And you have the same with Switzerland. They are not part of the internal market, but they have with their bilaterals a special status and have access to the internal market. And um, they participate in Schengen. And where some member states don't participate in Schengen. Yeah, true. I mean, there's already a, a huge... So you have this kind of diversity. You have yeah. Schengen membership, you have Euro membership, you have uh, agencies membership, you have customs union membership, which can be also different. Mm -hmm. So um, if you look at the details, you already see a, a very diverse picture of different circles of integration. So it would be too hard to just add another one on top. Yeah, it would not be so hard. <laughs> uh, but still, it will be an interesting exercise with the United Kingdom because they want to square the circle, yeah. which is difficult. They want to have no customs union, but want to have a customs arrangement. So they want to have access for their products, no red tape, but they don't want to give free movement of persons. Um, they want so they want to really pick and choose. Yeah, uh, and they don't. They want to have a different deal than Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland wants to have the same deal as the rest of the United Kingdom. <laughs> so I have no idea how this works. But it's also not surprising that they haven't come with any concrete proposals, the United Kingdom, because they don't have also themselves an idea yeah, what they yeah. do. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, just as a disclaimer, we know that the the proposal <laughs> came online yesterday, but both of us haven't yet uh, looked at that in detail. Well, it's the uh, uh, EU proposal. Exactly, yeah. yeah and still, Barnier yeah. said uh, today or yesterday in the press conference, we have three different options, and one of the options would be that UK makes a proposal. <laughs> <laughs> but I have uh, doubts that we get a UK proposal within the t given time frame. A shopping cart, just a list of things they want and then <laughs> yeah uh, everything and else excluded automatically but it's yeah it's it's incredible i it's i think uh, common sense has really left them at least the political leadership <laughs> andrea did we miss anything i mean there's a lot more to talk about of course but anything that uh, you definitely still want to bring closer to our listeners 
Um, well, we haven't talked about external relations, but uh, no, only a little bit, but we don't have to do it today. It's a big topic anyway, because everything that happens with the United Kingdom is in a few months external relations. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is what our UK experts uh, will work on for a long time. And, and I guess also the summer school. Uh, we'll, and we'll the focus summer on school and other. It's, it's actually an exciting topic because you do see, and that's why I like, uh, at the beginning I didn't like Brexit because it was so political. It was not clear what would happen. Yeah, but uh, now we know a little bit. From the legal perspe perspective, you're like, yes. Uh, now you actually have that <laughs> exercise for the uh, linkages between EU, international law, WTO law, and uh, with EA uh, system and the customs union. So it's a wonderful uh, role model for the different systems and how what works and what doesn't work, mm -hmm. legally speaking. Yeah, uh. And how much politics sometimes is away from law. What, what you as a lawyer have to explain, then this is not working or it cannot work this way. You can only do this way. But there are dis uh, disagreement on that. I do see a lot of uh, working papers by British lawyer who actually favor the Brexit, who really go into certain directions where I think, hmm, can you really have that opinion? <laughs> okay, that's always open. You have two lawyers and four opinions. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Andrea, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you.